Welcome back to another episode of On Topic Podcast with your host, Jason Kim. Before we go any further in today's episode, there's a few mistakes that I made in the last episode, which was uh, the first one being the number of times that Argentina won the World Cup. My wishful thinking thought it was three, but it turns out to be two. And the number of women's World Cup that the United States has won, I thought it was three. And didn't recognize that they won four World Cups last year or two years ago in France that they won their fourth World Cup. And that's an important distinction to make because, as I was saying in the last episode, in the men's game, at least, specifically in the men's game, when it comes to the World Cup, the political hierarchy seems to be flipped or shifted, where, let's say, the United States, politically, economically, and everything or whatever, is the number one country in the world. But in soccer, they're mid-range, let's say. But in the women's game, it seems to be that those political and economic status quo stays the same. You know, the United States is still top, Canada's top, all those Western European countries are top. Brazil should be doing better, but they haven't won the World Cup yet, the women's team, but they're still fantastic. They're still a fantastic team. But I just want to clear that out, letting, um, not to give misinformation. I know this is such minor information, but I'm telling you, misquoting the amount of times that Argentina has won the World Cup is, um, it's almost a death sentence. So don't do that. <laughs> If you say they won three when they, in fact, won two, you're shoving it in their face that they haven't won enough. <laughs> so back on topic. So today is episode three and still on the season of soccer. And today I want to talk about clubs. Uh, what clubs are for the North American audience would be a nice way of calling them franchises. In baseball, it's the same thing. They call, you know, they call out ball clubs or baseball clubs. So why is it, why are they got clubs and not franchise? I guess briefly to put it is... A franchise is very, sounds very business, which means that a franchise can move anywhere. The Quebec Nautic NHL team became the Colorado Avalanche. They were bought out and that's how it works. But clubs are more, if you work for the club, either let's say at front office or as a player, manager, coach, whatever, nutritionist, you're a member of the club. So it's kind of like being a member of a company in a similar way. A club seems to transcend the business aspect and really permeate in the fans that the club culture, what the club is about is very much dictated by the fans, what the fans want. That's kind of how it works in Europe when it comes to soccer clubs. And that's, it's very attractive because it's, you no longer really see it as a business, although there's no secret that soccer is a multi-billion dollar business. You see it as um, a part of your community, a part of your communal culture, you know? And it's kind of the same way in Spain and Portugal, you go to the, the bullfighting rings, but you go there because for the Spanish, for the Spanish or Portuguese, that's part of the culture that, you know, you go there, it's, it's a, a cultural event. Every, every culture has something like that, where you just, you have to go to it once in your life or feeling like you don't participate in that almost feels like you're not really a part of that culture. I mean, I'm probably reading way too much into it. There's a lot, I met a lot of British people who don't watch soccer, don't play soccer because, you know, they're just normal people at the end of the day, but Today, I want to break down the themes of when I talk about soccer clubs. I'll be presenting to you, to you sort of a, a theoretical framework, if, if I can apply that. I'm using a very, um, I'm sort of digging into my background in religious studies and applying that to soccer clubs. Because I really do see these soccer clubs and the people who are fans of particular teams as a uh, tribalistic society. I'm seeing them as almost like an anthropological way of approaching a new cultural group, what they're about. Who are they? What do they look like? What do they sound like? What are their values? What are their history? Well, you know, on, so on and so forth. 
but the themes today I want to break down again once again three which is the first one being tribal identity the second one being a cult viewing soccer teams as a cult and cult is not a bad word cult comes from the Latin word meaning cultus which cultus means care that's where we get the word agriculture which means care of the land and I see the people the fans who go to soccer games they truly care about their team I mean, I'll call them, I'll call it loyalty. If I, if I were to give it like a pretentious academic turn, I guess I'll call it cultist football. They, these are people who just care a lot about soccer and they care a lot about the team and how the team is not so much a single entity sport. For a lot of them, it is just pure entertainment, but for a good chunk of fans, the, the club represents not just soccer, it permeates. It's about culture, it's about identity, it's about belonging. And that's powerful, especially in day, today's time of modernity where everyone's feeling more and more lost feeling small and significant places like these become very powerful a man with belonging is a man that has a purpose so keep that in mind or a woman <laughs> um and lastly churches when i mean churches i mean stadiums look at stadiums at churches i think that's kind of self-explanatory i mean a lot of these churches are grandiose beautiful big uh but the churches in this case i'll talk more about its function and its emotional sentiment not so much about the one-armed man building the stadium from scratch if you look at clubs as a whole, it, it's prepackaged with so many things, so many meanings. There's deep layers of history and multi-generational families and people that come and go in these stadiums. You know, right now I'm wearing a jersey. It's a commemorative jersey of West Ham United. It's called the, the Iron Workers FC commemorative jersey. I think that's what it's called. It's uh, 2017. It's a fucking fantastic jersey. It's beautiful. So if you, if you look at that, the... West Ham United was founded by people who are ironworkers. Think about it. So imagine you work at your office and you work, let's say, at Airbnb. This new sport. This is all hypothetical. Let's say this new sport comes out and your office, your Airbnb office, wants to make a team the manager of the office or the supervisor, the head supervisor, wherever the fuck is the, the captain of the Airbnb office in Montreal or in San Francisco, wherever the fuck. Let's say the, the CEO, he's like the, the manager, the, the head coach, and all the players are going to be the employees who do play soccer. So that's kind of how it started in, in England, for the most part. You know, you have uh, West Ham United being ironworkers, Arsenal being those who worked in the Arsenal, good people who fucking make guns and cannons, you know. And you have these people who come together, they all work together, and then they, you know, they make a club, They then they participate, and, and then they become a global franchise. A, a global uh, trademark, if you will. And that's kind of how it happens in, in Europe. That's how it happened in Europe when it came to soccer. It was communities coming together and forming this team. And when you have communities coming together, that also means that your values, you have overlapping values, overlapping culture or dialect or sensibilities or what have you. When you get all those people together and to support those 11 players to play and win against another team, from another factory across town, then of course you want to win. I think all humans are inherently tribalistic. And when you attach identity into performance, then this, this is when things start to kick off. So when it comes to soccer, it, it simply became, I want to feel good about my life. I have this moment of feeling good. Yes, there's entertainment and you, you don't care who wins or loses. You're just there to have a good time with your buddies and drink beer. It makes you feel good. I feel proud of your community. We sometimes miss that in North America, but at the same time, those things could become very toxic very easily. Obviously, I mean, if we can't ignore or escape the fact that in England you have 
hooliganism is through the roof where you have different teams fight each other just because they're from two different cities. You know, Montreal, Toronto is a big rivalry, but if you put a Torontonian in Montreal, they're in the same bar, you're going to have the greatest time. You're going to have a good time. It'll be a lot of fun. There'll be a lot of banter. At the end of the day, we're just happy to make acquaintance. But in, in Europe, because it's a little more complicated in Europe, when if you look at all these countries, they've only been in countries for a few hundred years. They're younger than the United States as a democratic nation. Like Italy was founded in 18 something. Like that's yesterday or not even, that was like an hour ago, historically speaking. Italy as a country is younger than the United States as a democratic institution. Think about that. It's kind of, wow. <laughs> and Italy is such an old country. But so going back to the hooliganism and, and the tribalism, the problem with tribalism is the word tribalism. You created us versus them. To be fair, makes the games a lot more intense, a lot more fun. There's a lot more emotion and energy and the games mean more. So in terms of entertainment, that's brilliant. But we've seen the consequences where outside the stadium, these two sets of fans was just going to like an all-out riot, all-out war, where you're just like, fuck you, you're from Manchester, fuck you, you're from Liverpool, you took my job, you did this, you did that. And it's like, they might not even be saying that. It, it, it might be just the frustrations of their lives throughout the week, just bubbles. You know, they hate their life, they had a shitty job, whatever. It could be that or it could be other things, but things bubble and people have different motivations to release that. And for a lot of these fans who for a long time in the north of England was very poor and very working class and I guess welfare state in, in, in some respects. And if you have nothing to do, if you're not working and or you are working, but it's not a high paying job and you're just kind of stuck being a blue collar worker for your entire life, then yeah, you will be frustrated. Alcoholism becomes attractive, but then soccer also becomes attractive because it keeps your mind off it. I keep hearing stories how people said, you know, my dad or myself, we save up our week salary to buy tickets to go to the game. And they said that was what we look forward to. And not go to church. <laughs> Maybe they did go to church, but do you see what's happening? Church is being slowly replaced with another kind of church. I mean, granted, sometimes those two work well together, like the Sunderland Till I Die documentary. You can see that the that the local parish, the church, was really hoping for Sunderland because the, the priest noticed that there is a direct correlation between his attendees' moods in, in relation to how Sutherland play and their performance. And someone who, uh, as a priest who's concerned about his, I guess, his flock, if you will, his parish, you know, he wants his people to do well. He wants to see his people happy, as any good religious leader wants. And that kind of brings me to church and stadiums as a, as a place. But I'll, I'll get to that later on. If, let's say, you're on your phone or you're on Google and you have your web browser open, I would suggest to look up these stadiums that are incredibly beautiful. They reflect so much. Just by looking at the stadium, you can already get a feel of what these people are about. You know what I mean? Like if you just look at the stadium in its environment, in its surrounding areas, and then you look inside the stadium and the exterior, and you just take little looks at the statues or how it's built or the writings or if there's slogans or whatever, you really get a feel of what the community might be about. But the way I see these stadiums, even if you just look at the history and the, and the neighborhood where they come from, there's there's too much poetry and religion that I personally can't ignore. I, I, I have a hard time. Whenever anything has a sniff of a religious thing, a religious phenomenon or event, I, I maybe I'm just neurotic. I just got to go in. I got I to gotta figure this shit out. That's just how I am. And that's why I pick soccer in particular for this season, because it, to me, soccer is just one big religion in, in a weird way. It's sports. 
it's silly what I'm saying, 100%. If you look at how just the fans react and what it means to be a soccer fan and what their club means to them, it's hard to ignore the parallels between religion and, and sports. So that being said, I mean, you know, there's tribes, which is pretty much the culture of the people and their historical background, and cultural background, and how it permeates and affects affects the club. Even if it's a professional club with very clear financial goals. That culture is still there, and the people who run these uh, football clubs, especially in England, are very aware not to piss off their fan base. That's the money, and <laughs> that's who's watching. And let's say Arsenal Football Club. This is a working class club of North London. It's always been a working class club, despite the fact that it has the most expensive season tickets in England, and it's clearly been gentrified. I'm sorry to all the Arsenal fans who are from North London, assuming you're fucking listening. <laughs> it's too bad to see that because I'm hearing, I'm watching stories really, and uh, reading articles where a lot of these fans are getting very upset saying, hey man, I was that guy who saved up his money for the week to go watch Arsenal. Now I can't go because these tickets are too expensive. It's a recap the themes. It's uh, tribal identity, the tribe, cult, and I'm talking about managers and players, I'll get to that, and stadiums as churches. Now to bring all those three together, maybe it'd be best to focus on a single club. So let's talk about Liverpool. Uh, Liverpool Football Club. That's a club that I love. That's a club that I support. And I'll get to why I like this club. I'll put that at the end. But let's break it down. So as a tribe, I did some research, as I should. Liverpool as a city is pretty interesting. From what I quickly read, it was on Wikipedia. <laughs> it was founded in like the 13th century by the king or something. He like officially declared it as like a legitimate settlement or a legitimate city along those lines. But I don't want to obviously go over the entire history. I just want to go over some of the basic facts that I think are relevant towards Liverpool Football Club. So the first one being, there, the city is on the, on the banks of the River Mersey. And it's a big river. It's on the west coast of England, northwest. They're a port of entry for many immigrants coming from that direction. So if you're Irish or Welsh, Wales is right below. There's a lot of Welsh and Irish immigration that went into Liverpool. So along with Scottish immig immigration, in fact, Liverpool has one of the oldest, I think the oldest Chinese and black community in England, in the UK, according to Wikipedia. Now, the city itself is about 490,000 people, nearly half a million, the city itself, but the metropolitan area is about 2.2 million. And also one thing that became very significant about Liverpool is that it was a very industrial city. There's a lot of factories. Uh, shipbuilding was another big thing, apparently, in the, in the area. It's a very socialist city, actually. A lot of how, a lot of, I guess, what we call housing projects, but they will call it council estates, which says a lot about the economy of the city. It's a very working class city. So if you have a city that has, that is known to have a lot of housing projects, that's that's evidence of what's happening in the city, economically speaking, even culturally speaking. So it kind of brought me to a thought where I listened to some interviews by Peter Moore, the current CEO of Liverpool Football Club, and it brought me to this article about is Liverpool Football Club a socialist club? So now you're thinking, okay, so why are you jumping to socialism and, and politics? Well, I'm reading this article right now online called this. It's on the website. This is Anfield, which is obviously a pro a pro Liverpool football club uh, website with all these articles saying why Liverpool is like the greatest thing on the planet, and and it's hard. Basically, this article is pretty much saying that Liverpool as a city. Not the club, not the soccer club, but the city is a very socialist city. It's always voted socialist. It always voted Labour Party in, in the UK elections. I, I study a bit of political science, but I don't know everything, obviously. But it's 
whenever you have a place with highly industrialized urban centers, socialism will always emerge out of those places because then you see the then you see the tensions between working class and upper class where the rich are seemingly getting richer, but the poor are staying poor. And this is how socialist movements come to be because you see these connections. They're like, wait, but you're getting richer, but I'm still here. Aren't we all supposed to prosper? Isn't trickle-down economics supposed to be happening? And one of um, Liverpool's uh, legendary uh, coach, Bill Shankly, I'm going to quote what he said. He gave one of the best, I'm reading off this website right now. Shankly gave one of the best definitions of socialism when he said, I believe the only way to live and to be truly successful is by collective effort, with everyone working for each other, everyone helping each other, and everyone having a share of the rewards at the end of the day. That might be asking a lot, but it's the way I see football and, that's, and the way I see life. It's a beautiful side. He's a coach at Liverpool Football Club. His idea of socialism is, socialism is very much influenced from soccer. It's, we, we're all in this together. We're we're all leading the charge as one movement out of solidarity. And you see that in the, you see that in Liverpool. If you go to other clubs, there are a group of fans called ultras. Ultras are kind of um, self-explanatory. They're the, they're the hardcore fans. They're the ones that will let out the flares. They're the ones with the drums. They're the ones that usually be singing throughout the entire game. They're also the ones that will most likely get into fights after the game. In the UK, they're called casuals. Uh, well, the people who fight will go to the games to fight. And in, in Europe, there's ultras. Uh, in MLS, we have ultras. But the ultras in MLS are more like, they're just like hipsters having a good time. That's all they are, which is fine, honestly. They're, they're a lot of fun. But in Liverpool, in connection to their socialist background, you could see it at the games. There's no, there's no ultras if you go to Anfield. There's no such thing as ultras. It's everyone... I never been to Anfield, and I was supposed to go in March, and because of the pandemic, I couldn't go. But from what I see on TV, what I've been seeing on TV, and listening to other journalists and other players how they talk about Anfield, how they talk about Liverpool, Liverpool Football Club, and even uh, watching interviews with fans, it's truly one big family. They're truly everyone's equal there. You get that feel like in some clubs you see the ultras, and the ultras are just like, oh shit, that's the ultras. Like, oh okay, that's cool. Almost put they put up a pedestal. But Liverpool doesn't have ultras, and they don't need it because. That's not socialism. Why have one group that's a little more special than the other, right? So they're all in this together. All sol- there's a solidarity. But how- however, there is a section of Anfield called the Cop End. Cop End is a very, very famous section of the stadium. And it's a single, yeah, single tier stand. And what makes them famous is it's the single tier stand. You have this mass of fans just there, perched above, right behind the net. Three, two, one. Yeah, so Liverpool doesn't necessarily have an ultras section, but they have the cop end. And the cop end is a single tier stand where you have like a jam pack of fans just there. Other clubs that have something like that is Tottenham just had that. They just broke the south stand in the new Tottenham Stadium. And uh, Borussia Dortmund has it, the yellow wall, which is like, I think, 30,000 fans in one section. Single tier section. So usually stadiums will be stacked in like one, there'll be like two or three layers of stands. But this is one single one. So imagine, so it's a huge section. But in Anfield, they have that. Except what the cop makes it special is it's when you're attacking the cop, same in Dortmund, it's intimidating. You, as the opposition, you see that. And how do you not get intimidated by like a bunch of like drunk English fans waving flags? They're the ones that usually continue singing all game. Some people call them. Some people would mistake them as ultras, but they're not because it's it's community members. You need to be a member of the ultra. So there could be a, a club membership fee, like a membership fee to be an ultra or something like that. I'm not sure, but I'm guessing it works similarly. But the ultra is sort of a 
a sub-community of its own. What I've noticed, I could be totally wrong, but what I've noticed is that the ultras are the fans that seem to be 100% dedicated, like the super hardcore fans, let's say the, uh, the extremist fans, if we use a religious uh, tone, uh, religious words. Yeah, I guess you can call them the extreme. It's not necessarily that they're out there to commit violence and oppose their laws on others, nothing like that, but it's more of um, they're the ones that go all out for the club with the flares, the singing, the dancing, and all that stuff. And the rest of the stadium are just, you know, normal fans. So if you were to see it in a religious building, in a religious context, in a religious community context, ultras are ultras are kind of like the missionaries or the extremists or the fervent religious people, let's say. And everyone else is just like regular people who go to church once a week or on, or come to church for the holidays. And the ultras are the ones that come go to church twice or three times a week. They're They're all about it. This is their entire life. That's, I guess that's a good way if you want to break it down. But yeah, so that's the that's a tribe of Liverpool Football Club. They're they're also known as Scousers. Those who come from Liverpool, they're also colloquially known as Scousers. I don't know what that means. They have their own words. They almost seem to have their own dialect. Their accent is just what in the fuck? I don't what it's it's unique. Please just go go online, go on YouTube, look up Jamie Carragher or Steven Gerrard and listen to them speak English. Go just like type in. Liverpool accent, what the fuck? <laughs> that's that's my opinion. Even other English people don't understand their accent. It says a lot. It's quite unique. It's kind of like the Boston accent of English. You All right, so now moving on to cult. So, as I said earlier, cult means care. And in every soccer club, there seems to be a strong uh, cult following. You know, the term cult following, like let's say uh, the Big Lebowski has a cult following, or the Room has a cult following. Ironically. And soccer, same thing. I mean, we see the same thing in sports as well. You know, the Chicago Bulls. You, you, if you've seen the uh, Last Dance documentary, everyone that's mentioned there is there's a cult of personality around those people. Uh, there's people who worship, especially Michael Jordan. Was my generation and the generation before me worshipped him, and I had no idea who the fuck this guy was as a kid, and then I was shamed for that. <laughs> and Liverpool's no different. I mean, they have a very strong cult of personality, and it's tradition. It's heritage, it's uh, culture, it's everything. They put some of these managers and players on a pedestal that, you, how, how do you not call them prophets? And how do you not call them prophets and saints at this point? I mean, it's so overt, for me at least, it seems so overt. Before we go any further, I need to explain what managers are. So managers is a specific job in soccer. It's the head coach, if you will. You know, in, in soccer, it used to be the manager would be the one guy who he would coach everyone. You know, there would be that one coach, like in any sport, who would coach everyone, who would do everything. But the manager, they're, they do more because they're obviously, like in any sport, they're the in-between guy of the team, the administration, the, the people who run the club, and the fans. It's like a three-way point where he's kind of in charge of kind of keeping tabs of everything. His main job is to win games and to make the best team. But there's more that goes into it because under the manager in today's game, under the manager, there are multiple staff and coaches that he is directly also in charge of. You know what I mean? So he has, let's say, an attacking coach, a defensive coach, a midfield coach, a goalkeeping coach, a nutritionist, uh, a statistician if they needed one, someone who looks at videos. You know, like whenever a new coach is hired in professional soccer, you're not just hiring him. He's... You're hiring him plus 20 other dudes that he relies on. He might keep the same guys that were there before him, 
oftentimes they want to bring in the guys that they trust. And it's like, I know he, I know this person's the best nutritionist. I know this person's the best physio. I know this person's the best dad. And I want to bring them because I trust them. I don't want to rebuild a relationship with a stranger unless they know them, or unless they see the record. They're like, okay, this guy's too legit. That I can't, I can't say no to, but that's what managers are. It's much more of a mental job. It's much more of, it's a lot of work. It's, it's you know, being a CEO in, in some regards, your, your job is not just to play and manage the game for you it's to run pretty much run run the church essentially you run it from scratch you run the community now the corporate side is is, is kind of distant but he's on the ground you know he's more on the ground than anyone else in the board so they do a lot they're just not a coach if you ever call a manager just coach some of them might get offended they're like no no no. it's either head coach or manager because coach is like i could be a defensive coach and i'm working with five players but the manager is working with like 50 people. I'm also kind of exaggerating, but at the same time, it's that's the nature of the job. In Liverpool, the manager becomes profit-like when they win. You know, in Liverpool, they when they talk about managers, they talk about them like eras. The Bill Shankly era, the Kenny Dalglish era, the Jurgen Klopp era, or even the Brendan Rodgers era. You know, there are different eras. And that's a it's a pretty interesting term to use era because that's how you speak about kings and empire and emperors. But right now the coach at Liverpool is Jurgen Klopp, and he is a German guy from Borussia Dortmund, but he also has a working class background, and that's one of the main reasons why they attracted him to Liverpool is because he understands that city as a people. It was like, oh, we both come from socialist backgrounds, we both love passionately love this game. And we're both working class peoples. And that's kind of, that's what I, right, that, that's what attracted him to go to Liverpool. But what made him very special among the fans is that he said it in his job interview with the board was, I need to activate the fans. Meaning, he needs to get them really fucking lit for every game, which is what he did. He energized the fans. Every time he, every time they score a goal, he run down the touchline, he jumping, celebrating with the fans. And the fans love that. They're like, okay, this guy really loves the game. He's sharing the same energy as us. And that's all he did. He just mimicked the energy that they would output. And that would just kind of get them hyped up and keep going, going, going. You know, he would famously do at the end of every game. Every time Liverpool would win a game in Anfield, he'd walk over to the cop end and start fist pumping, I guess. And then they would like chat along with him. And that's a powerful thing. Like, who does that? Like, that's kind of a lot of, it's a lot of cultural power that he has. And so I would see managers as profits. You know, every profit comes in and institutes a new philosophy, a new way of playing. And Jurgen Klopp introduces new way, not a new way, but a different way of playing soccer that was very attractive to the fans, very attractive to England as a whole. It was high pressing, high energy, in your face. Like if they get the ball, it make them tired, make them run. And his team that he didn't build by himself, the Fenway Sports Group that owns Liverpool helped him build this team that they just pretty much moneyballed it, except for like Van Dyke and Allison, who were like fucking 200 million pounds in total with both of them. But all these players he bought, I remember when they were signing all these players, I'm like, who the fuck are these people? Andrew Robertson from Hull City for like five or eight million. I'm like, who the fuck's this guy? And Gina Wijnaldum from Newcastle, who's that guy? James Miller from Man City, he's old. Jordan Henderson's our captain, why? You know, it's like, it's like all these questionable things. Who's Trent Alexander-Arnold? Oh, he's, just, he's a youngster. Okay, cool. And they're signing all these players that some were, my initial reaction to some like Shakiri, 
when the Liverpool signed Shakiri, I was like, oh, smart move. But I didn't understand what was happening until they won this year, a few weeks ago. And that had everything to do with not just Klopp, but the board helping him out. But what Klopp did was he took players that he didn't necessarily wanted and made them into diamonds and made into a winning team that played every game like it was a cup final. The, to keep that energy momentum throughout a, throughout a year is, is difficult. It's very taxing on your mind. It must be very taxing on your... And, you know, it is taxing on your body, but it must be very taxing on your mind. And that's what he did. And that's why people celebrate him because he brought the best out of a money ball team, if you will. You know, he's famous. He famously said he never wanted to sign Mo Salah. And his first season, Mohamed Salah scored like 40, 50 goals in all competitions. And he didn't want him. He, did, he didn't want him. That's what? Like, what a talent. And, and that's all good managers do. They get the best out of their players. That's what they're paid to do. Get the best out of their players. Get the best out of the system and win. And what I love the most about Jurgen Klopp as overall, and one of the main reasons why that not just the not just Liverpool fans love him, but the media, the other English fans, other European fans who are looking at Liverpool, they want him because he's not just charismatic, but he's just a normal dude. <laughs> That's his whole marketing of, of himself. He's like, I'm just a normal guy. Like when he when he signs a new player, they don't talk about soccer. They talk about life. He's like, hey, so how's your vacation? Where are you from? What is your parents doing? He asks like normal shit. He doesn't ask about soccer. And it humanizes the experience. So yeah, so he he humanizes what what a lot of soccer players would feel a very straight to business industry where okay so you're gonna play center mid you're gonna do this you're gonna do that what do you think you do best under my system I could do this I could do that as a player I could I'm good at passing you know shit like that but no you know like that could that must get boring and tired at some point and to know that here's someone who just generally cares about you as a person and can separate the athlete and the professionalism that's that's amazing. I mean, I think that's what more people kind of want, where you have someone who is able to be both pragmatic and emotional. And that balance is at that level of professionalism seems to be kind of rare. So he's a prophet. <laughs> he, he completely revolu revolutionized Liverpool. He brought in a new style. He brought in hope. I think that's the strongest thing he did. He brought hope because Liverpool hadn't won a Premier League in 30 years. And he he did that. One day when he first came to Liverpool, he called himself the normal one, which was a reference to Jose Mourinho's comments when he came to Chelsea in 2004 or 2005, calling himself the special one. But when Mourinho said that, he kind of said that jokingly. But at the same time, he knew that that was a good way for people to start talking about him. He wanted all the media attention, uh, sort of to take it away from his players, which is also a smart tactic for some managers. Because a lot of people would say that Mourinho is self-conceited, which I'm like, I don't know the guy, so who am I to say? But Klopp, in his interview, he jokingly said in reference to Mourinho's uh, statement of the special one as, I'm the normal one. It's like, that doesn't necessarily instill confidence, but it was funny enough and it was charming. We're like, oh, it's something different. That's funny. And about four or five years later, he's won a, a Premier League. No, he's won a Champions League first, Premier League, multiple Europa finals. I think he, the Community Shield, the Super Cup, the Club World Cup. I mean, like, the, the trophies are going to start racking up now for Liverpool because Klopp built this team like an amazing team. I got the best out of an amazing team. All right, so where was I? So Jurgen Klopp as a prophet. So as I was saying, he let's let's translate him as a prophet into religion. So 
if we were talking about Jesus as a prophet, not as a Messiah, but as a prophet, then that would mean, well, that does not mean, but rather prophets come in usually during time of distress, crisis, instability. Uh, those are times you often see prophets. That's why prophets, they always often emerge as a activist movement in some way or the other. So when you see Jesus, he came during a time when the Romans have colonized the Middle East, particularly Israel. They colonized Israel and a lot of the local inhabitants were sort of forced. They were going through a process called Hellenization. So they were learning Greek philosophy, Greek language, Roman values, you know, all that fun white stuff. And they were they were learning that. But, you know, for a lot of people, someone like, someone like Jesus, a man who was a carpenter, meaning is a blue collar worker, a normal guy, a regular guy. But somehow has an incredible intellect and can debate rabbis in Hebrew. Because remember, Hebrew was the, well, you probably didn't know, but Hebrew was the, the language of the religious elites. Whereas the average person was probably speaking Greek, Aramaic, uh, maybe even Latin, but most likely Aramaic. And these prophets come out to give hope to people, to let them know that there is a better tomorrow, that if we just come together as a community, reshape the way we approach things. Yes, now sucks. Now is a period that sucks. But I promise you, if we all come together, work together as a team, as a community, as believers, then we can move forward. We can right our wrongs and usher in a new dawn where prosperity is all we know. And that's kind of what prophets do for, for the most part. I mean, there's a lot of things that prophets perform, but that's one, things, that's one of the things they do well. And that's what Klopp has done when he came to Liverpool. He reinstilled hope. This is a guy who came in when Liverpool was struggling to compete anywhere. I mean, the highest they've achieved was winning second place. And some people say that's just the fate of Liverpool. There's a lot of fans who said, I don't think Liverpool is ever going to win a Premier League again. But when Klopp came in, he understood that it's important to instill hope into the fans. And that's what he did. He completely re-energize the place where it's become infinitely intimidating for anyone to go there. I mean, I just watched the Barcelona documentary on Netflix. I suggest you go watch that. It's pretty, really well done. I mean, it's very Barcelona biased, but it's presenting you the view from a Barcelona fan and Barcelona club member or a Barcelona player. Anyway, even in the documentary, Barcelona, when they went to Anfield, they were intimidated. They were scared. They were terrified. They knew what they were getting themselves into. And the way they show that episode in the Barcelona documentary about Liverpool, I, as a Liverpool fan, obviously I loved it, but also it really captured the atmosphere. And they showed you the Barcelona fans. Even the Barcelona fans had a lot of respect for the for Anfield and for Liverpool because it it's cool. I mean, like it's it's very communal. You're entering an unusual space. Barcelona, they have fans that are come all around Spain and all around the world, but Liverpool. When you see it on TV, it's very clear that all these people are locals. I mean, for me to get a Liverpool ticket was really fucking expensive. And the main reason why it's expensive is because they protected those seats for locals so that locals can't be bought out by richer international fans that want to come visit. Again, a very socialist way of thinking. But it's also, I, I support that. I mean, sure, fine, fair enough. I mean, I'm, I'm grateful to be in a position that I'm in. So uh, if I can afford it, I will, you know. But that being said, a manager can't be eternalized without its players. I mean, the manager imprints his vision onto the players. And obviously, I mean, what's soccer without its players, right? It's not a bunch of managers and coaches playing against each other. It's players being managed by one man. 
for Liverpool, the cult of players seems to be incredibly strong as well. I mean, uh, yeah, again, uh, Kenny Daglish, Ian Rush, Graham Sune, uh and then Steven Gerrard, Jamie Carragher, Xavi Alonso. Then you have Daniel Sturridge during that like two seasons where he was fantastic. Now Jordan Henderson being one of them. Uh, Van Dyke being another one. I mean, these players like what Liverpool love is players that are charismatic. I mean, any fan loves that. Any fan wants a charismatic player, but to have an entire team where you visibly could see that they all get along and they all love the manager that they're all die right and die for each other. That kind of mimics how Liverpoolians, people from Liverpool, that's it kind of reflects their mentality amongst themselves. That Liverpool is kind of doing its own thing. It's very unique. That a lot of people who are from Liverpool, so uh so the anecdote goes, apparently a lot of people from Liverpool are will opt to call themselves Scouser over English. You know what I mean? They would rather watch a Liverpool game than watch England play at the World Cup, supposedly. But I kind of, it seems fitting for a city like this. But on the topic of players, it's if the if the coach or the manager is the prophet, that these players are like saints or martyrs or or elders, if you will, like elders in the religious community. These are the guys that you hope they do well for the betterment of your community. These players transcend in a weird way in terms of the intensity, emotion, and love that the fans have towards the game and towards these players by extension. They transcend hum- the human realm in a, in a really weird way where some of these players are looked up as heroes. I mean, that's what they are. They're heroes. I mean, every boy wants to grow up to be a particular player. You know, when I was a kid, I always looked up to Kovalev and Koivu and, and, and Zenik and the Montreal Canadiens. But in terms of soccer, I grew up watching... You know, Cristiano Ronaldo, Kaká, Zidane, Ronaldinho, Brazilian Ronaldo. Those are some of my heroes, you know, and they're inspiring. They motivate you. Those are the people who you want to be. You want to get on that level. And also part of your ego wants to be loved the same way as they were loved. Granted, they were also fucking abused left and right like crazy. But you only see that intense love and intense, intense, intense love, intense hate in a, in a room full of passion. You only see it there. And the only other place outside of sports I see that is in religion. You know, you either intensely hate someone, you intensely love someone. Granted, it depends on the religious person. But when hate enters religion, it becomes very strong. And I mean, we know that. I don't need to tell you this. We've we've seen this happen many times. And it's unfortunate it's happened. And in sports, you see it the same way. There's a moment where, before I get to that story, let me talk about Steven Gerrard. Steven Gerrard. He, too, has a documentary on Amazon Prime. They all these fucking players have documentaries and autobiographies. Like It's like their ego never ends. And But Steven Gerrard's documentary is really good. It shows sort of uh, his twilight years as a professional player, his last year or two playing for LA Galaxy. And you can kind of tell he's kind of, he's phoned it in, you know, he's, he's done. But it kind of, it talks about his journey becoming a Liverpool captain, what it means to be a guy from Liverpool to become the captain of Liverpool Football Club. And the entire city loves you because you're one of them. You know, when was the last time you watched, if you watch sports, when was the last time you watch a sports team fielding their captain as a local boy? You know, you don't see that anymore. In North American sport, you hardly ever see that. Even in Europe, you don't really, you rarely see that too because now the game is uh, commercialized. You can just buy the next best player. And and Steven Gerrard was kind of one of those last of uh, 
local talent that became captains. He became the embodiment of what it means to be a scouser. He became the embodiment of representation and the values of what it means to be from Liverpool to work hard, put your head down, you know, to play with passion and to do it for the fans and do it for everyone, do it for your community. And he literally wore his heart on his sleeves. And that's what made him so attractive. And there was a moment when Jose Mourinho and Chelsea wanted to buy him because he was one of the best midfielders on the planet at the time. And it came close. Apparently, he was really close to going to Chelsea. And during that period, during that rumor period when they was going back and forth, the Liverpool fans were really upset with him. They called him, like, Judas. I think, that, yeah, they called him Judas. And they, they were like, you're a traitor. Oh, you're a sellout. You're going to the big money club of Chelsea in London, in West London, which is the, uh, the bougie part of London. And you're ditching us working class people up in the north. It's kind of like if Ned Stark decided to become king of uh, King's Landing. It's like, hey, bro, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, you belong in Winterfell. It's kind of like that. And uh, somehow, in a, in, a, in a weird way that it somehow connects. But man, in soccer and with clubs, the cult of personality is such a big deal. Because when you are introduced to a, a particular club, they will give you the Hall of Fame or the biggest names of each club that when they introduce you to these players, they're letting you know what this club is about. So when you talk about Liverpool, Steven Gerrard's the first thing that'll come up in mind. Historically, if you're talking about today, it'll be Mohamed Salah or Sadio Mane or Virgil van Dijk or Alison Becker, one of, you know, one of those guys, or even Trent Alexander-Arnold. When these fans tell you these are the players that came through, like I said, this is identity. This is who we are. We've produced them or we've bought them. They've flown our banner. And this is like in Real Madrid, for example, they're called Galacticos. They're superstars. They only buy big name players. You know, if you, if you meet a Real Madrid fan now and you ask him who's your biggest player, hands down, Cristiano Ronaldo, because he's like one of the, he's a LeBron James of soccer today. I think that's the best way to compare it. And Messi's probably the Michael Jordan, except minus the questionable toxic <laughs> um, competitive streak that Jordan has. But you know, whatever. I, I think that's one of the reasons why he makes it great. And to think that as players, you grace your time as a professional player is limited. And a lot of these players who play for Liverpool always, always say that they were scared playing at Anfield. They're scared playing at home because the pressure was so high, the demand was so high. They understood that these fans are so passionate, you don't want to let them down. Granted, you lose a game, they might get upset, but there's that family feeling of, I'm disappointed, but we know we'll get them next time. There's a great I guess we can even call it corporate culture within Liverpool. And it's a, it's a phrase. It's we go again. That's what they say. Every time they win a game or lose a game, let's say it goes from Saturday, uh, Sunday to Monday. On Monday, they say we go again. We restart. What happened the other day didn't happen. It doesn't matter. This week is a new week. It's a new opponent, a new challenge. We go again. We have to win. It's almost like a constant restart. So that's how every game becomes a cup final for Liverpool because they understand that you have to live in the moment. You have to take the opportunity that's there. It's kind of like life. It's, it's you, you have to take the opportunity that's there. Live in the moment. It's good to plan things out, but you don't really know what, how things will turn out. And that's what's so great about this Liverpool Football Club is they were undeniable. They were so good. And they were, so, they were an inspiration to watch. You knew that 30 years of winning for a Premier League title was sitting on, was weighing heavy on their conscience. You, you just knew that. And they, they had to win. They had to win. And, there's, I'm not even saying as a fan. I'm just saying as a fan of the sport, they had to win. And it seems like the stars aligned when they won because they, 
it seems like the entire Premier League were like, finally, you fuckers won. And then now you're going to keep winning for the next 10 years. So let's hope they keep winning for the next 10 years. <laughs> the one reason why they made, they were so good at winning was because of the stadium they played in. Anfield became an incredibly intimidating venue to play. They also just renovated the stadium so they can add 20,000 more stadium uh, seats. So now they could sit a total, I think, 45,000 people in total from like 30 to 45,000, something like that. And they have plans to make it bigger. There's some pros and cons of big and small stadiums. Big stadiums like the Cap Nou can sit 100,000 people. That shit gets loud at a European night. That shit gets loud at Champions League night. But you lose the intimacy that you have with the fans. That they, The stadium is so big that you don't see individual faces anymore. It just becomes a building. and It's like inanimate. Whereas smaller stadiums, I would cap it at 50,000 in my opinion, or depending how the stadium is designed, smaller stadiums become more personal. You know, you can hear the fans. You can see their faces. You can see their lives. You know, they're, they're right there. And it becomes far more intimate. And it's the fans are on top of you. And it's it's scary. As Imagine you had to go take a throw-in. And the fans who are just a foot behind you are just talking shit. Like, that's... I don't want to be taking a throw-in. And, you know, so venues, away venues, like a stadium like Anfield matters a lot. And the way soccer teams see as a win in the away game, it feels so much better because you're winning at... It's an away game. You're you're beating a team who is on home soil. I just conquered you in your home soil. Your supposed intimidating venue. Fuck that. I just beat you. I've embarrassed you. I beat you 4-0 in front of your home fans at home. That's got to hurt. You know, it's a lot of ego, a lot of pride, and it's very territorial, very tribalistic. Again, like every religion, it is, if again, if we're seeing soccer as a religion or Liverpool Football Club as a particular denomination of a greater religion, Every religious space has a comp- is accompanied, you know, with various forms of leadership, community, sacred space, and distinct music. Music plays a major role in, in soccer. Because if you watch a Sunderland Till I Die documentary, season two, a new management comes in, tries to change up the club. They decided to add, put a new intro music to get the fans pumping. If you go to any sports game, same deal. It's to get to tap into your emotions to get you pumped up for the game as that's entertainment at the end of the day you know uh, when you go to a concert you have all these openers to get you warmed up for the main show even if some of those openers might fucking suck but you know you're still getting warmed up which is also another tactic if the openers suck it'll make the main show much better because it's compare and contrast it's like going from dark to light if you will but that being said like in in, in liverpool they have perhaps one of the most famous songs in the world that's perhaps even transcended out of soccer. It's called You'll Never Walk Alone by Jerry and the Pacemakers. It's uh, This band who wrote the song is are from Liverpool. As Beatles were becoming famous worldwide, Jerry and the Pacemakers were famous domestically within the UK, but in particular in Liverpool. So this song, You'll Never Walk Alone, as the title implies, it's empowering, it's uh, motivational, it's inspirational. It puts grown men into tears, like this guy. And it's um, it's a beautiful song. And I mean, like, the the song is about hope is that in one of the lyrics of the song it says um i'm probably paraphrasing but it says uh if you walk through the storm there's a golden sky it's the it's the promise of a better future how can you not like that how can you not like that i mean it's especially when you consider the city that's been that's been through poverty that's been very industri- that was very industrial lost a lot of jobs under the Thatcher government and that's been almost working class since the day it was founded of course such a message would come out of there why do you think 
why do you think gospel music and spiritual music from black communities in the American South is so powerful? Because they have that message ingrained in them for 300 years saying, we're going to get our day. We're going to have our day. And they still have it. And it's a, a similar, it's a similar vein to this song, You'll Never Walk Alone, saying, hey, man, we're all in this together. Like a very real socialist spirit. We're all in this together. We're marching through. We're going to get through this. And when I think about it in today's time, especially with COVID-19 pandemic, it's, it's a powerful message. And it, on the gates to the Anfield Stadium, it's written on the gates, you'll never walk alone. That's how much the song means to the fans. If you just look it up online, you, you'll love it. It's a, it's a beautiful song. And, it, and tying it to religion, how is that any different to singing in mass? When you sing as a community, and I know I'm using a lot of Christian comparisons because that's what I'm most familiar with. So for those who are not Christian, I apologize. Not really, though, but you know, I'm sorry for making you feel left out. But if I were to use another religion, for example, Buddhism, Buddhism chanting is serves a purpose. We all chant in unison because we're trying to tap into something, you know. And, and with this, what they're tapping into is the message of we are Liverpool Football Club. This is who we are as a group. This song single-handedly summarizes what this football club is about. And that's powerful. You don't really see that in any you don't really see that in other football clubs. You really don't. I MLS, you don't see that. I'm trying to think in other big teams in Europe, and they probably have the song of their own. It doesn't hit as hard as You'll Never Walk Alone. Or maybe or maybe I'm just biased. Who knows? But anyway. <laughs> oh, yeah. And lastly, for with, with the stadiums, if you look at the images, especially the stadiums in the UK, the one thing you're going to notice the most is these stadiums are in the middle of neighborhoods. Some of these stadiums are literally in the middle of neighborhoods. If you, in North America, these stadiums have a space of their own. They have like an entire city block just for the stadium. Stadiums in the middle. There's a metro station, a bus station, or parking lot, or whatever. The stadiums in England they seem to just blend in with the community. So if you take like an aerial picture of let's say Anfield, it's it's a single monolithic building that just rises above the row houses of of Liverpool. The very distinct English style row houses are stuck together. You could just see this huge, massive structure just towering all the houses. And how's that not any different from a church? If you go to Montreal, it's the same thing. You see these churches that will just tower above the triplexes. Now with gentrification, we're not seeing those churches anymore. But, you know, no one's really going to church in Quebec anyway. And to, to see it like that, again, as someone who studied religion, churches are often placed in the middle of a community. Here, we're seeing it again, except it's football. It's a, it's a stadium in the middle of a community. If that doesn't tell you how much this means to them, then I don't know. It's You don't do that on purpose. I mean, you do that on purpose. You don't do that by accident. And also, if you think about the rationale of the time when maybe, I mean, even today, the majority of fans get to Anfield by walking or taking public transit. But imagine a time when not everyone had a car. Of course, you want the stadium as close to the neighborhood as possible because you know those people will be the first ones they're waiting in line to get in. If ever you see videos of like the buses, like the team buses pulling into Anfield, they're just driving through neighborhoods. And like in other stadiums, it's often there's like kind of like highway, there's a major boulevard that just turns into the stadium. But this is just these small two-way streets, these two-lane streets. And it's just jam-packed with fans watching the buses drive by. I mean, there's another famous uh, incident, well, infamous incident rather, where when Manchester City drove in to play Liverpool in the Champions League, uh, Champions League round of 16 or quarterfinal, 
all the fans were waiting for the Manchester City bus. They were chanting, they were setting up flares, they were intimidating the fuck out of these players. They were throwing bottles at the bus, which was, I, I think, was a little unacceptable. But you know that that shit happens with passion as is at its highest. So that adds another factor of you are entering the heart of our tribe. You are entering the heart of our village, and it's you're really going into the belly of the beast. So that adds another mental component on top of that when you enter before even kicking a ball you know that's like i said in the first episode i'm so as i just don't understand how i i really respect the mental strength of professional athletes in this environment it's it's tough it's brutal it's tribalistic and hostile and yeah and so when you look at stadiums even the old school stadiums they have this heritage feel of history and culture other stadiums look like palaces, like the Etihad Stadium in Manchester City's venue. Even the name Etihad sounds regal. I think Etihad means united in Arabic. I could be wrong. My Arab friends, can you translate Etihad? Okay, they won't, they won't, they won't translate for me. Anyway, so never mind. But if you look at these renovated stadiums, they look new and clean and beautiful. You want to go to them, you know, like Tottenham Hotspur's new stadium called the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium. Which is too bad because White Hart Lane is such a nice name. But if you go to Tottenham Hot uh, Tottenham Hotspur Stadium, it changes into a, a football a NFL field. Or you know, and they have this all this latest technology and shit. They have their own brewery. Everything's beautiful. It's nice. It's a place where I would not even I would just chill there. I would, that's a place I would just go chill, not even watch a game, just chill. It's that nice. Or you have other stadiums where it look it feels like a fort. You know, Old Trafford, Manchester United's venue. Theater of Dreams, that's what's that's their nickname. It's a good name. It's a good nickname, rather. That feels like, at times, it feels like a religious building, and other times, it feels like a fort because it's like this red brick all around it. It's just very imposing, very industrial feel to it. Or some other stadiums are pretty bland. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. Uh, Saputo Stadium is not the most... It's not boring. It's not special. It's just very typical cookie-cutter soccer stadium. That's another cool thing to look into if you're someone who's into architecture. Look at soccer stadiums around the world. A lot of fun. A lot, a lot of fun. So these these stadiums are shrines. They're sacred spaces. This is where magic happened. This is where David defeated Goliath. When Liverpool defeated Barcelona, it was an impossible job. They weren't supposed to beat them. They lost 3-0 in Barcelona. And in the second leg, they had to beat them by four goals. They need to win that game 4-0 to Barcelona, the greatest team on the planet, one of the greatest team on the planet with Lionel Messi. Whatever Messi's on a team, it's the greatest team on the planet. I'm sorry, Cristiano. I'm sorry, Ronaldo fans. That's just a fact. And they beat fucking Barcelona 4-0 at Anfield. I've never seen that in my life. I've never seen such a drastic impact. And the craziest thing was, as I was watching the game getting started, I had a feeling that Liverpool was going to pull this off. There's so there's a magic in the air, the European night, and you knew that Liverpool was going to pull some, they're going to clutch it out. And they did. They clutched it. They beat Barcelona 4-0. Go watch that Barcelona documentary. They they covered that game perfectly. The shock on the Barcelona fans' face, the, the depression hitting the Barcelona players. One of the players, Jordi Alba, just started crying in the dressing room at halftime because he knew he was having a bad game. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> or maybe because they're Spanish, so they're just very emotional people. I shouldn't I shouldn't I shouldn't generalize, but anyway. So that being said, uh, so when I, again, when I think about this topic, I 
can't help but to relate it to myself and my personal experience with Liverpool. Liverpool Football Club as a team and watching it as entertainment came in around 2012. In the first episode, I may mention of this, but now I'll get a little more deeper. In 2012, uh, I think that's when they signed Brendan Rodgers as coach and as manager. And they signed Luis Suarez from Ajax in Amsterdam. I watched Luis Suarez defeat destroy Korea 2010 World Cup. And so I became interested in this player. He was, he was really good. And that's when I really started watching Liverpool from a distance. I used to watch the Premier League neutrally. I didn't care who won. I just want to see a good game. But every time I noticed Liverpool losing, I would slowly get upset. And it doesn't make sense. I would slowly start getting upset. And I didn't like the fact they were losing. And then I became fascinated about who they were. And I started researching what they were about. You know, I went on Wikipedia, I went on YouTube, I went online, I looked for articles and interviews to see what is this club about? Because I made a conscious decision that if I was going to support a Premier League team, I want to like them. I want to genuinely like them outside of soccer. And all the other teams didn't really speak to me. A lot of my friends were, a lot of my friends were Arsenal fans. And it's funny because some of them were Arsenal fans through video games. And others were, they watched the Invincible era, so that's how they became Arsenal fans. I had a lot of friends who were Manchester United fans. And I guess I guess I like to be a contrarian, so I, I want, I like Liverpool, because I, I didn't meet a lot of Liverpool fans. I met like only two in Montreal, but there's a bigger community for sure. When I started listening to You'll Never Walk Alone and understand what they're about, I fell in love with this club. It was a club that promised belonging, that we are Liverpool, that if you are a Liverpool fan, then you are, by extension, accepting our values and who we are as a people. I guess in a way, some people might put me on a political spectrum leaning towards socialists. I voted NDP in the last election, and that was a stupid vote, but I stand by it. And so what Liverpool stands for, I, I like. It resonates with me. And it's I think it's a beautiful thing. And it's I know it sounds silly because at the end of the day, it's just franchise corporate sports, but... God damn, their marketing is good. And they got me. I guess that's the best way of putting it. They got me. And I I couldn't stop watching Liverpool. And the more I started digging into what about Liverpool really resonated with me, the idea of belonging, of hope, and and justice, uh, the Hillsborough justice. I mean, there is... Um, oh, that's, that's an, in the 80s, uh, a bunch of Liverpool fans went to Hillsborough uh, to a away stadium, and the the stands collapsed, leading to like a lot, like hundreds of thousands of people dying. I think like hundreds of people dying. Let's not exaggerate. But it was, they were crushed by other fans. I, I forget the details, but it was horrifying. It was, it was awful. And what made it so painful was that the government or the F, I think it was the FA or the government, they pretty much blamed the Liverpool fans saying, you were too many in that stand. You were, you were too rowdy. I think that's what they're saying. And they're, it collapsed and a lot of people died. And, no compensation came out of it. There's no compensation, no sorry, no nothing. They, the Liverpool fans were, somewhat, were, were blamed for that. The, and Liverpool Football Club, as, a, as an organization and as a fan base, to this day, keep asking for justice. They're like, no, it's not our fault. You fucked up. You should have set a cap on the amount of people that should be sitting there, and you should have checked the integrity of the stadium so, that this, so this wouldn't happen. Okay, so why bring up Hillsborough, why bring up that accident and that that event? You know, I feel like as someone who's a fan of Liverpool, I may not be from Liverpool. I did not witness that or went through it or have any family members that suffered the consequences of that day. 
whether they lost their life or they knew someone who lost their life. I wasn't there. But I feel like as a fan, perhaps this is a lot of Liverpool fans will say this is unnecessary, but as someone who's lost a parent, oh, I lost my dad in 2011, I can relate to that tragedy. I can relate to the tragedy of anyone losing a, a family member or a loved one. I can totally relate to that. And also as a Liverpool fan, I feel like it'd be fair. It's only fair for me, the least I could do, to show how much this club actually means to me from afar, that I talk about that. That it is it is unfair and it did suck. And that also that also kind of brought into certain things in focus for me. As I just said, my father passed away in 2011. He passed away from cancer. And the one activity we liked to do together was watch soccer, as I said in the first episode. He tried to get me into golf, but as a kid I didn't I didn't like doing things that people told me to do. And as a as I grew as I became a young man, that was the one thing that him and I we could bond over. And then after he passed away, I found myself in a weird space where I was watching soccer by myself. And I spent a lot of time watching it by myself. I had friends watch it, but you know, my favorite thing to do was always to run home and watch with my dad. And Liverpool seemed to help me get through that tough time. The message that they have of hope, that it's okay, that we're here right out of solidarity. The idea of solidarity really resonated with me. And to know that a lot of these people who sat at the same lost a loved one in the Hillsborough accident, and they not, I don't know who they are. They don't know who I am. They don't know I exist. I conceptually know they exist, but I don't really know who they are. So someone might be asking, why, why put so much emotional baggage onto something that's totally unrelated to you across the ocean? I guess emotions are a funny thing. As someone who stopped going to church, I guess I found a new religion through Liverpool. And it helped me get through some of the toughest time in my life. Uh, things I still deal with today. As an idea, Liverpool Football Club as an idea means so much for me for that reason. So you might be asking, if my father hadn't passed away, would I still be a Liverpool fan? I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. And I would like to say, yeah, because I'm somewhat optimistic. I like to think so. If I could trade in Liverpool for my dad, then obviously I'm going to make that trade, of course. But I can't do that. We're here now. And Liverpool is here now. And they won the fucking Premier League. That's happy. <laughs> That's good. And then, and how is Liverpool not attractive for these reasons? It, it taps in beyond football. It, it taps into who you are as a person. What do you want to be as a person? How, how do you want to see yourself emotionally? And I think that's what, maybe that's a smart marketing of Peter Moore, but uh, the CEO of Liverpool Football Club. But, I mean, how can you, how can you say no to that? You know, it's, again, it's a powerful message. So that that's my connection with Liverpool Football Club. I might be wearing a West Ham jersey, but at the end of the day, I'm a soccer fan. I'm a fan of the sport. Liverpool has really changed the way I, I see soccer or how I approach it. It gave me the emotional component to the game that I was only scratching the surface of. You know, before Liverpool, I was watching every single Real Madrid game because that was an easy team to support. They had Ronaldo, Kaká, Benzema, Xabi Alonso, Sergio Ramos, Marcelo. That's when I started watching. Guti, Raul. Van der Vaart, what a deep cut. And I that, I started watching them in 2009. And it was always fun to watch Real Madrid. You just knew they were going to win every game. So you only watch Real Madrid for the big games like Valencia, Sevilla, Atletico Madrid, Athletic Bilbao, Barcelona. You, you watch it. You really watch, or even Real Betis now. Real Betis is pretty good. But that's when I really watch Real Madrid for those big games. And But Liverpool, I watch every game. I just, I guess my emotional stake into Liverpool was that high. And Madrid was, 
as attractive as Madrid is, it emotionally feels foreign. I've been to the Santiago Bernabeu. I watch a Real Madrid game. And shout out to my friend Estela for for getting me that, uh, getting me those tickets. And I, I'm so happy to say I've watched the 11 greatest players on the planet play. Luka Modric, Tony Cruz, Gareth Bale, Isco, fucking Isco, and Marcelo again, Sergio Ramos, Varane, Kaylor Navas, or was it Courtois that was playing? No, it was Courtois that was playing. And it was, holy shit, they're so good. They are so good. Anyway, but that's what Real Madrid, it's, when I went there, no exaggeration, half the fans are not from Madrid because they branded themselves as an international club, whereas Liverpool brands itself as a local club, the people's club. Very socialist idea, again, kicking in. So what's the point of me talking about all this? Am I just making a deep cut? Am I reading way into this? Am I, again, just a typical liberal student from Concordia University finding things to talk about when there's nothing to talk about? Maybe I'm very open to, to the idea, but it's undeniable that how people feel about the sport and about their clubs is uncanny at the very least. It's something worth paying attention to. I think today's time, we're far too pragmatic. We think, you know, today's society, we're either too emotional, too pragmatic. And it's nice to see something like soccer as benign and soccer, where you could suspend pragmatism and just be emotional. Let it all out. That's why I believe that religion will forever have a place on this planet, because you need an emotional valve and an energetic valve. And I think, I think soccer provides that. So to conclude, about clubs, uh, I mean, it's to, to reiterate, you can see clubs from the fan level, that's the tribe, the tr from the player and manager's perspective, or from the player manager level, that's the cult, the cult of personality, the cult of football, cultist football, if you will, and the stadium as uh, the venue of this religious experience that's unfolding before you. And when you leave the stadiums, you often... The same way as I used to feel when I leave church, I always felt good leaving. Even if we lost, I still felt pretty decent. Granted, there's some games when the Impact would lose, I'm like, this is the most, this is a fucking garbage game. This is the worst game I've seen in my life. Impact will give you that every so often. And, but I still felt good because at least I was getting angry with other people who felt the same way with me. And again, solidarity, it's, it's a nice feeling. And that all that to say is, unlike North America, where the cities are founded by Europeans with the uh, foundations of indigenous people that have been there before, North America is a we're countries of immigrants. A new generation, new waves of immigration will happen every other decade, and they will leave a print on their city. They'll leave a, you know, in Europe, if you think about it, if you look at the history of Europe, every city was its own country, and they used to beef with each other. So that that's where a lot of this tribalism was founded as well, where there was this pre-existing division within the country like italy was divided to multiple kingdoms and so was germany up, up until recently and you see that kind of transfer over that same kind of energy there's a lot of books and theories about that that transfers over to sports and so when liverpool wins your team wins but in north america it seems to be a little different in north america it's people come and go these are countries of immigrants People come, make new lives, build new foundations, and add further value to the city's culture, identity, and ethos. But in Europe, when you enter these cities, these things have already been pre-existing for thousands of years. You are, you are adding to it, but you are adding to a soup that's already been made. You're adding another vegetable in that soup, if you will, if you want to use that kind of comparison.
it's not just community what soccer represents for the people living in those cities it's it's of course it's you know it's municipal pride and all that fun stuff and all that jazz but for international fans such as me specifically me i see the emotional component that's what attracts me to it the things outside the soccer field i find incredibly attractive about liverpool i mean they when they play amazing that's even better but that's kind of what soccer clubs mean to people it's uh, a place of identity for a lot of people it's a place of worship when they don't go to church they go there so i encourage you to those who are listening that take a moment to appreciate let's say a local sports team what they actually do for the community they might not be professional but they add a significant component to your community and if you do have a you know whatever city you're from if there is a, uh, a professional sports team there you may see the corporate side and the money-making side that will always forever be there but just pay attention to how the fans react when you go to montreal canadians game if you're from montreal listen to when they play that riff from uh uh the coldplay song Fuck, i forget the name of the song they play that one part where it gets all the fans pumped up, everyone gets emotional. Pay attention to that and really ask yourself, why are we surrendering our emotions to something like that? And I think once you start explaining the emotional components of these things, you start appreciating the existence of of sports. I appreciate it. And like I said just before, I don't know where I'd be without Liverpool Football Club today. It's really saved my mind. Liverpool saved my emotions and saved my mind, so... Anyway, thank you for listening. I know this was uh, an out there topic, but again, thanks for listening from Montreal. I'm Jason Kim. Thank you.